Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. All right, now you know what to do if you didn't know before. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. This is the central proclamation of our faith that Jesus rose from the dead. That he rose in a new body. See, the last week of Jesus' life is a really, really good story. It's intriguing, it's captivating, because essentially the last week of Jesus' life is a power struggle. And we all love a good power struggle, don't we? And just be honest here, you love a good power struggle. Maybe you don't like being in a power struggle, but you love watching a power struggle. Who here has watched Hot Heart? Right? Why do you watch House of Cards? It's a good power struggle, right? We we know that story. We love the the juicy drama that comes in a power struggle. And what we see here in the last week of Jesus' life is a power struggle as we know it, but with a huge twist. What happens is Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, and then up the kid through the Kidron Valley into the city gates, there are throngs of people who are gathered around who are taking palm branches and waving them at Jesus' feet, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are proclaiming him as king. They are wanting him to come and reign as king. And as these people are gathered around, the masses gathered around Jesus, the powers that be, in Jerusalem, take notice. Because Jesus is a threat, right? Jesus is a threat to the Pharisees, those who had power in Jerusalem, who had long enjoyed the masses' admiration for their impressive piety. These Jewish leaders, Pharisees, they didn't just tithe, they tithe even their garden herbs. But now the masses are impressed by Jesus. They're going to him. Jesus is a threat to their power of influence. Jesus is a threat to another group of Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the ones who held the most lofty titles, the elegant positions of religious status. They controlled all the wealth. See, um, Jesus is the one being claimed as the king of the Jews by all the masses right at that moment. And I I think they picked up rather quickly on um, that king of the Jews, the Messiah, is a little bit above their best title on the religious ladder. See, Jesus is a threat to their religious power. Jesus is a threat to the Romans, who above all want control, so that Rome would be the only power to be feared in all the earth. Jesus is a threat to their political power, because Jesus is messing with the peace in Jerusalem. You have to see this as well. Jesus is a threat to one more power. He's a threat to Satan and all of his legions. For Jesus anywhere is a threat to Satan's temporary spiritual power. Satan fears the one who has already cast him out of heaven. So, we know how a good power struggle plot line goes. When people with power, in positions of power, in influential power, monetary power, spiritual power, when they are threatened, what do they do? 
fight back. Chris is going to go into you know studying government. We know what happens when governments get a little out of control. In yes, we live in Chicago. We know this. You do all in your power to keep your power. All in your power to keep their power. And this is exactly what we see these different groups do. What do the Pharisees do? They utilize their relational power, so they stir up the masses to shout, crucify him, crucify him. Only a few days later, for the man they know is innocent, they whip up a bloodthirsty frenzy. What do the Sadducees do? Well, they utilize their monetary power to pay one of Jesus' own to deliver him over. And they don't neglect their religious power by gathering all the people with the impressive titles, the Sanhedrin, into an illegal trial at night where they vote Jesus to be handed over to the Romans for execution. What do the Romans do once they get their hands on Jesus? Well, they use their political power. Pontius Pilate, who was prefect over Judea at that time, is only concerned about one thing, and that's to keep control over the situation so that Rome will maintain its power at whatever cost. And it becomes evident to Pilate there is no other choice but to kill Jesus. What does the devil do? There is no week we see Satan more active in all the Bible than the last week of Jesus' life, shamelessly using all of his spiritual power to destroy Jesus once and for all. See, this is power as we know it. This is power we understand. Doing all in your power to keep your power. We know the power of money. We understand the power of influence. We know the power of status. Perhaps we're sometimes a little bit shy to talk about the power of Satan. But we know power and power's ability to lean towards abuse. When we talk about power, this is what we're talking about. When we think about power, this is the power we're thinking about. And so to get their way, any of these powers that be, what's the greatest weapon any of them can use? Think about that for a moment. What's the greatest weapon any of these powers can use or threaten? This is true of Jesus in his last week of his life, but it's also true for all time. The greatest weapon that we know of that any of these powers can use or threaten to use is the power of death. For what's the worst that Rome can do to you? They can kill you, right? What's the worst Satan can do to you? Kill you. Decide others to kill you. What's the worst that Jewish leaders can do? Hand you over to be killed. Yeah, they can do other things, but the worst thing that they can do to you, the greatest weapon that they can utilize, is the power of death. Right? Here's the story and why this story is so unique. Here's the power struggle, is that the king of kings became a victim to their thirst for power, that Jesus underwent the weapon of death, a gruesome crucifixion at the hands of Rome, the behest of the Jewish leaders, with Satan himself laughing. The greatest weapon, the greatest power was fully spent on Jesus. See, up to this point, the story is quite familiar. But death doesn't end it for Jesus. Death doesn't beat Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. His body came out from the grave. New. New body. That means that there's a new power that everyone is dealing with now. And it is resurrection power. Showing that what the world thinks of as power 
is not real power. Jesus has resurrection power. Power that the power of money, the power of status, the power of influence, the power of violence, even the power of death have nothing on. For Rome, Jewish leaders, Satan, you can send any of your flaming arrows at Jesus. He will conquer them. Not by returning violence for violence, evil for evil, death for death, but by accomplishing unstoppable new life. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is life. There is no life apart from him. Death is only a twisted invention by the enemy himself that has nothing to do with Jesus. Death has no power over Jesus. The resurrection shows that all of the powers of this world have died with Jesus and they remain in his grave for eternity. Jesus beat death. Jesus beat Satan. Death has been defeated. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, hell, where is your victory? There is a new power in town. It's resurrection power. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I love that Jesus asks, do you believe this? He says this, this is not the resurrection, Everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Because if you believe this, it literally does change everything in your life. If you really believe that Jesus is greater than death, that Jesus gives you eternal life, it means that this resurrection power is yours that the resurrection is yours, that that power that defeated death is now yours, because if you've been united with Jesus in a death like his, Paul says, you shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The hope of our lives is that we belong, not just that we believe, but that we belong to a power that nothing in this world can touch. It means if you're following Jesus, you are united to him, fused in an unbreakable bond, that his story becomes your story, that his power becomes your power. Yes, if he tarries, you will die, you will suffer, perhaps even in the way Jesus did. But just as Jesus rose from the dead, you too will rise. This resurrection is yours which, by the way, is especially why you might suffer. Because the power you have in Jesus absolutely threatens every other power of this world. Don't be surprised at the suffering that will come to you. The reason you suffer is because you preach a resurrection power. Paul, when he was on trial, about to be killed by Rome again, by the way, in his testimony said, it's because of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
Have you ever thought about how weird that is? Why would it be him proclaiming this new life that would lead him to be on trial to die? Well, why is resurrection, resurrection what leads to suffering? It's because he's saying, Rome, greatest power on earth, there is a power even greater than your power. Paul wasn't being insubordinate. He wasn't being a bad citizen. He was just filled with resurrection power, boldly proclaiming the oncoming resurrection. You can kill me, but I will rise from the dead. You can threaten me, but my future is clear. You can speak all evil against me, but I know the words that will be spoken to me on the last day. Revile us, hate us, slander us, use whatever in your power against us, but you cannot stop the resurrection. For just as Jesus rose from the dead, you too will rise. More surely than tomorrow's sunrise, so will the resurrection come. All will be new. This resurrection is yours. To sing and dance like there is a shirin coming tomorrow, leap and run. You have a resurrection power that this world can do nothing about. So, what do you fear? Really, what is it that you? Yeah, can, can we do it all in Jeopardy time? Can I actually ask that question? And if you have something that comes to mind, can, can you just say it out loud? What, what do you fear? It can be the most simple thing or it can be the most vulnerable thing. What do you fear? Forgetting truth. Good answer. It doesn't have to be that spiritual, right? No, that's good. That's a good answer. Disappointing people. I've never been there. I have no idea what that feels like. <laughs> Being hurt by others. Totally. Messing up. Sorry, I should, I should not make sarcastic comments, dude. I just so identify with that. Like, well, it must be a bummer if you met. I don't know what that's like. It's not funny. Failure, totally. Not making a difference. Totally not making a difference. Totally. Thank you for sharing. Boredom. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a real fear that so many of us have too. We've even imagined no one would come to our funeral. That's one of the most common fears. Anyone here a Brene Brown fan? Yes, okay. Who's Brene Brown for? Um, 
No, you, you, you know that that's, uh, that's exactly what I mean. that, that is who Renee Brown is. She uh, teaches the University of Houston specifically on shame and the effects of shame in our lives. Uh, she was on a show with uh, Oprah. I don't know if you've heard of Oprah. Is anyone telling who Oprah is? Um, uh, but she was on a show with Oprah, and she was saying in 2013 that the biggest the biggest thing that America is dealing with is um, who, what am I so afraid of and whose fault is it? So I love Renee Brown because she kind of just speaks kind of directly to you. She says, you know, the people especially who say that they aren't afraid of anything, this is much more common if you were honest among them, are the people who it's easiest to point out what their fear is. And if we look at what we're afraid of, right, if we, if we say a lot of what we're afraid of, right? We're afraid of disappointing people, we're afraid of, uh, we're afraid of failure, we're afraid of abandonment, we're afraid of all these things. What, what you actually really can see is the flip side of a lot of those fears. And what's the flip side of a lot of those fears? Is it's objects of our love, right? You, why do you want to not forget truth? Because you love truth. And you want to protect that truth. Why do you want to not disappoint others? Because you love others and you love others' approval of you. And so you want to protect that approval that you have from others. Why do you not want to be abandoned? Because you want to love so much the presence of other people. And so what are we afraid of is what we're most afraid of losing. The more we love something, the more we're afraid of losing is this making sense? And so, here's how the resurrection changes everything. Right? This idea of loss is not, has nothing to do with the resurrection, right? The, the world of death and all of its forms, we're so used to a world where things end, where things die, where Seasons change, where relationships always break and lose, where all of that is gone. But what the resurrection says is if you're united to Jesus, you are united to him eternally. If Jesus defeated death, it means that he also defeated all of the cycles of loss, which means that in his resurrection power, as he orders our loves, as we spend eternity with him, the things we love the most, we will no longer lose. And the hope that we have is even in this life where we still will lose things, where we will lose people's approval, where we will lose friendships, where we will lose that which we hold dear and that which we fear losing because we love. The hope is, the hope is that we actually are united to Jesus. Meaning, we will not lose Him. It is impossible now for you to lose Jesus. And you know that loss. Here, I finally figured out. I knew I was missing. Here's my main point, guys. Actually, here's my main point. This is it. Oh. <laughs> 
I forgot to print out the part of the notes that had to do with it, but you can tell. Um, if it looked like I didn't know what I was supposed to say next, it's because I had no idea what I was going to say next. Here's the thing. Here's what changes. It's not that you don't lose anything anymore, but what the resurrection fundamentally changes is that loss is now forever temporary. Is that you will not eternally lose what do we most fear losing? If we're honest, abandonment is probably the deepest one of a fear that we have of losing friendships, of losing the, those who we care and love the most. And what the resurrection tells us is that those new things will be raised from the dead. I, I most fear, you know what person I most fear losing? Shocking. I, I most fear losing Sarah. I love my wife. And, and Joshua and Eliana. It's hard to, they're all there. But here's the hope of the resurrection. Is if Sarah dies, yes, I'll lose her for a time. But I will I will be with her for eternity. I will not lose her for eternity. And we'll be with Jesus together there. That all of the curses of loss is only temporary. So what's the worst that can happen to you now? What's the worst loss that can happen to you? Really think about it. What is the worst? Oh, Dan, I don't. You drew me into my life. The hope of the resurrection is that that loss is only temporary. And that there's a sure and coming day when it will be restored in Jesus. It will be returned and raises us up. So, Manuel, can I just have you come on up? Can I just invite you to really just pray over us? Pray that we would be filled with the power of the resurrection, knowing that we are united to Jesus in his power, that we have a resurrection power that is greater than any power this world has. And would you just pray for the banishment of fear? What's the worst that this world can give us when we compare it in light of the resurrection? love. Thank you, mighty God, for friends and family. Thank you, mighty God, for everything that you've truly done for us, God, even the things that we take for granted. Father Lord, we pray, mighty God, that you remove every form of fear. Father Lord, for your word, you said perfect love cast out all fear. So Father Lord, I pray, mighty God, that you will fill us up with your spirit, almighty God, that the resurrection power will resonate in our souls, O Lord. Father Lord, I pray, Almighty God, for your glory to truly fall upon us, Almighty God. Father Lord, I pray that you remove every form of fear. God, fear of failure, fear of abandonment, fear of not doing enough. Father Lord, I pray, Almighty God, that all that will be replaced by your spirit. Take time to prepare for 